Erica Chan remembers March 12th, 2020, like it was yesterday. The pandemic. She was sitting at home when she got an email out of the blue saying work was canceled indefinitely. It wasn't just for me. All of my friends was getting work canceled. And so it wasn't uncommon. And it kind of seemed like it was happening to everyone. Erica works in the film industry in Los Angeles, and the pandemic hit the media and entertainment worlds hard. She knew work in her industry wasn't coming back anytime soon, so she decided to file for unemployment, something she's done before when work dried up. So I posted on my own personal Facebook telling people that I know it's confusing, and if they need help applying, that they should ask me whatever questions that they had. Erica's Facebook got flooded. But the problem was, Erica didn't always have the answers. And I decided to create a Facebook group because maybe other people can help other people. And so I started that Facebook group, I think, maybe around March 17th. And I think by April, May, it ended up growing to maybe 20,000 members. Maybe by June, it was like 40,000. And as of today, it's like 70,000 members who ended up joining. So it became a really big thing unexpectedly. I didn't realize how much people actually really needed that help. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. By July of 2020, about 4.4 million Californians were receiving unemployment benefits. But hundreds of thousands of others who needed help were not. Erica was trying to help them. She says the application's length wasn't the problem. It only took about 30 to 60 minutes to fill out. The real issue, it was hard to fill out correctly. It was very confusing because the way they would word the questions didn't really make the most sense. And I think partly it was because Maybe the government has to write their questions in a way where it was legalese, where it was proper. But to a common person, sometimes that stuff doesn't really make sense. You have to read it a couple times to make sure you're answering things correctly. And especially with the pandemic, a lot of things changed. They had a lot of different questions. For example, there was one question that asked, are you too sick or injured to work? The question didn't take into account the pandemic and COVID spread. The applicant must answer no, even if that wasn't true for the applicant at the time. If someone put any other answer than no, applications would be flagged or denied. Once the application was filled out, it still took three to four weeks to process. If you didn't get an automatic approval after that time, you'd have to call California's Employment Development Department. And Erica says that was a nightmare. When I was helping people call, I would block out four hours to get through. Because first you have to call in and you speak to a tier one. The tier one, which is usually somebody who couldn't help you, they could just take information and make sure you weren't asking something basic. And when they realize that you have to actually speak to a tier two who can actually adjust your claim, they transfer you. This whole process takes about three to four hours. Once you reach this tier two and they, let's say, are somebody helpful and they want to make changes to your claim and they say, check back in two weeks. 
Estimates from the state's unemployment office show that with the sharp rise in unemployment applications due to the pandemic, only about one in every 1,000 calls were ever answered. So a little industry sprung up around that. Phone services where people could pay someone else to wait in the queue for you. Honestly, think a part of the issue is the disconnect because you've got a lot of people who are working the phone lines, but not a lot of them understand the struggle and the pain of actually applying and going through it. It just seemed that way because when you speak to somebody, if had they understood what was actually going on on the ground, maybe they could have been more efficient with fixing what the actual issues were. In 2020, Erica ended up spending most of her time helping other people file their unemployment claims. So much so that after about eight months of doing this, she had to start charging a fee. Well, there's obviously something broken with the system if people are trying to find answers elsewhere. Had the system been working? Had people been able to speak to the agency to be able to resolve their issues immediately? There wouldn't be a need for outside sources to help. So there's something wrong. There's something that's not working. Erica Chan lives in Los Angeles. Erica also told us that some of the people she started helping in 2020 just got their unemployment claims approved this year. Now, California is not alone. When the COVID pandemic hit, social service agencies across the nation that administer unemployment claims, food stamps, free school lunches, rental assistance, you name it, they were all inundated. Congress acted quickly to make sure funding was made available, but getting that money and services into the hands of Americans was a different story. Jennifer Polka talks about that in her new book. It's called Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. And we've got an excerpt of the book at onpointradio.org. Polka also served as Deputy Chief Technology Officer in the Obama White House, and she's founder and former executive director of Code for America. It's a nonprofit that tries to help government agencies modernize their use of technology. Jennifer Polka, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much for having me. So you were actually tapped by the state of California to co-chair a task force uh, looking to improve the very or, or fix the very problems that Erica talked about in California's unemployment system. Um, so first of all, what were the goals of that task force? Well, I believe that Governor Newsom asked us to look at the user experience of applying, which is what Erica was just speaking to. But I think we decided as a task force that the experience that users wanted was to get their checks, to, mm-hmm. to get the the actual benefit. So we decided that the most important thing would be to clear what was clearly a mounting backlog of claims. Um, I think the day before I started, there was a, a hearing in the state legislature in which the director of EDD testified that she thought there were 239,000 cases that they hadn't been able to look at yet. Um, but the Members of the state legislature were so overwhelmed with calls from their constituents. I mean, their entire offices were just swamped with these calls from people who hadn't gotten their checks that they were pretty sure it was more than that. And we set out to figure out, first of all, how many there were. 
thought it would take us a couple of days. It actually took seven whole weeks for huh. us to figure that out. And by then, um, the number was about 1.2 or 1.3 million claims that hadn't been looked at yet. In the backlog. Okay. Wow. So what explains even just that that delta in that one data point? Well, they weren't counting. It was very, very hard for them to count these. Um, the reason it took us seven weeks is that it's just very hard. And the reason it's hard is that while people tend to think that there is a computer system on the back end of a claims, uh, like you know the system that you make the claim, it's not really a system. There are layers of systems that date back to the 1980s, mm-hmm. and they've sort of been you know, accrued one over the other over the decades. Um, some people have called them layers of paint because it's true that if you paint on something too many times, those, those layers of paint will start to crack, and that's what's happening. But I started to think of them as sort of archaeological layers mm-hmm. of, uh, of technology. But I realized in working with these amazing public servants trying to get this to work that those archaeological layers are really an expression of archaeological layers of policy. And the complexity of that policy is is almost hard to explain, except through a little anecdote um, that I heard through one of my colleagues who was working next to these claims processors every day. There was one who kept answering her questions by saying, well, I'm not quite sure about that. I'm I'm the new guy. I'm still learning how this all works. And after about the 10th time he said that, she said, well, how long have you been here? And he said, I've been here only 17 years. <laughs> the, the, the folks who really know how this works have been here 25 years or more. So if it's that complicated to know how to process a claim, of course these systems are not going to scale up in times of need because you can't have more claims processors all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And, and I think people don't recognize not only how fragile the layers of technology are behind that application, but also how sort of mind-bogglingly complex the policy and regulations and processes that have been, you know, added since the 1935 Social Security Act Mm -hmm. have have become. Mm -hmm. You know, what you're describing in those archaeological layers of policy and technology, in fact, I have to say it sounds familiar to me because um, we did a show uh, a while ago about customer service in general in the private sector and why it just, mm-hmm. you know, every time you get on the phone with anybody, let's pick on the airlines again for a second, it's an awful experience. And we had private sector consultants say, well, the problem is, is their systems are built upon older systems, which are built upon older systems, which are built upon older systems. And so there's never been sort of a top-down review of how to make customer service a better experience or an adequate top-down review and a uh, and a more efficient um uh, uh, technological um, process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not unfamiliar in the private sector either. What makes it even more painful in the government and policy world? Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And I think people will call out COBOL as the problem. Um, <laughs> oh, you know, Sorry. COBOL should, is yeah. this programming language. That's okay. From, for, you know, it was started, I think, in 1959. So it sounds really, really old. And and the truth is there's COBOL in California's unemployment system. There's COBOL in every unemployment system. But there's also COBOL behind, you know, making a, a reservation with an airline. Um, 
Those layers are not necessarily the problem if they connect well and if they are the policies that govern them aren't so complex that it takes 25 years to learn. I think my big lesson from all of this was wow, we can't just work on the technology. We've yeah. also got to simplify the processes and the rules and the regulations. And that's not in the hands of the, the customer service agents. Jennifer, hang on here for just a second. We'll be back in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com onpoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Jennifer Palka joins us today. She's author of the new book, Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Uh, and Jennifer, I'm sorry we had to take a quick break there, but I wanted to let you finish your thought about how fixing the technology when it comes to implementing policies like unemployment or food assistance isn't enough, that you have to go further upstream. And go ahead and finish that thought. I just don't think that we can actually fix the technology with the current complexity of policy and process that it's supposed to fulfill. Um, and that just means that our elected leaders and uh, the people who create all that policy that comes down from the top are going to have to look a little in the mirror and say, wait, instead of yelling at the bureaucracy and saying, why aren't you able to deliver these services? Um, I think they need to ask themselves, what are we doing to make it harder for the bureaucracy to deliver, and what could we do to make it easier? And I have a very long list, if anybody wants to ask me, <laughs> of what those things might be. But they start with, don't just keep layering on mandates. Um, you have to remove some of the mandates so that these people can get their jobs done. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to hear actually more um, about how, let's say, the, that layering on of complexity in original legislation, it sounds like, uh, how that's manifested in the end user's experience or the, the individual American's experience. Um, I mean, it, you know, you, you've talked about before uh, SNAP assistance in California. So food assistance. And we're, again, we're, we're not, we don't mean to pick on California, but it's really a terrific example because it's a huge state. Um, how does that complexity uh, end up landing before the person who's applying for assistance? So, yeah, in California, back in 2013, when we started working on SNAP access and, and uh, enrollment, there was one of the forms that Californians would use to apply online was uh, 
uh, had about 212 questions in it. It didn't work on a mobile phone. And so a lot of people trying to apply for SNAP just never got through that original application. Uh, you know, if you went to a library computer, it times out after half an hour and it's pretty hard to get through it in half an hour. So you'd have to go start all over again. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at something like that and they say, oh, there must have been bureaucrats who really didn't want people to get through. This must be an intentional design choice. Mm -hmm. But it, it isn't always. I'm not saying it. there isn't that sometimes, but uh, a colleague of mine who was working on this, a guy named Jake Salomon, one day he was asked to come present to the consortium that had created this application with the 212 questions. He had been quite critical of it, and it was sort of surprising that he had been asked to come because he had created this alternative application that was on a mobile phone, and you could do it in about seven minutes, and it was much clearer and easier in much the way Erica was talking about, like the questions made sense. Um and when he was at the meeting of these 23 counties that all contributed to using that form and managing it and paying for it, um, what he found is the way they made decisions about what went into that application form was that the 23 counties got to vote, which is makes sense, obviously. I mean, they're the stakeholders in it. But what that meant was that those 20, there were 23 different entities that all represented sort of what the government needed but not 23 people who were representing what was good for users. Mm. And I think that that, you know, we tend to think that when something is really hard to use, that there's, you know, a bureaucrat behind the scenes who had all this power and, and you know, decided to make it hard. But what, what we saw was that really nobody has very much power. Everyone has a little bit to say, wait, we need this in and we need that in. And, you know, that's how you get to 212 questions. But nobody has the power to say, wait a minute, this is going to be really hard to use if everybody gets to pile on their requirements, but nobody gets to pull back mm. and say, now it's now it's sort of, you know, what I call a concrete boat. <laughs> it's so big and heavy, it won't float. So we kind of need to recognize that, in fact, it's not diffuse power that can make these sort of burdensome processes Um I'm sorry, it's not concentrated power. It's really diffuse power that in the bureaucracy that can end up with these things that feel incredibly burdensome and overbearing and often sort of insulting. Mm, okay. So the diffuse power then also leads to um, lots of different stakeholders throwing in what you know their desires, um, regardless of whether or not it's actually good, as you say, you're saying for the end user. And then it also does this thing where no one, no one in particular is responsible, right? So accountability is a little is more challenging. But if I could just take yes. a moment to see it from the other perspective, the reason why um, this problem I think accrues more rapidly in government is that take those counties that you were talking about. Um, you know, they're not just like individual executives, as you said. They actually also represent the, you know, the, the, the other residents and citizens and probably most importantly the taxpayers in those counties who may or may not be one of the users receiving the assistance. And I point that out because, you know, we've been we were looking at some of those 212 questions for the SNAP benefits, right? And they included things like, do you own a burial plot? I guess I'm not quite sure what that's <laughs> supposed to, um, you know, to supposed to say about current ability to pay for food. 
But then they have questions like, have you or any member of your household ever been found guilty of trading SNAP benefits for drugs or guns, etc.? Now, you could make an argument that from the perspective of whatever county put that question in, that it's actually quite important for them to know on behalf of the taxpayers in that county if the SNAP benefits are being used for their intended purpose, right? So there's more than just the end user in mind that government has to keep in uh, has to keep in their minds. I mean, you have to remember that question derives from some regulation someone put in somewhere um, that's a fair regulation. I'm I'm not debating it, but is asking the question on the form the right way to to ensure that are they going to are they going to answer that honestly? Um, and and which of these things are really important to ask in you know right up front? So that barrel plot question is a good example. Um, I tell a story in my book of actually, you know, I spent I spent years sort of using that as a negative example. Um, why do you need to know that? Um, and then I was working with somebody in federal government who I was trying to convince that we would do something much simpler and clearer and with less clutter and fewer questions. And I used this example to explain to him, like, this is why it's bad when we ask these too many questions. And it turns out he was the one who had written the regulation in the first place. So it was a very awkward conversation. But because I was sitting right in front of him and I had direct access to the author of that regulation, I could ask him why. And it was really simple. He was not a bad person. He was just trying to be very thorough. When I said, why did you include that, And that his which has now resulted in, in this being asked on these applications, which are now, you know, 212 questions long. He said, well, Congress asked us to make sure we assess their assets. A burial plot is an asset. And it was very clear mm-hmm. to me that he didn't mean harm to the users. He had just been given an assignment by Congress, and he wanted to be as thorough as he could possibly be. And I, I just want to always recognize that good intention but also help steer it in a different direction. And I, you know, I, th- I think he's somebody who's since told me he recognizes now that that maybe that wasn't the right way to write that because it, it results in these in, in these sort of burdensome systems and these low enrollment rates. Yeah, you, you know, it makes um, applying for SNAP benefits sound even worse than applying for a, a new mortgage, which I've always considered to be like the financial version of a colonoscopy. Um, <laughs> right? Right? I mean, like, why? So the, I did it recently. It wasn't so bad. Oh, really? Maybe it was it just gets better. My, maybe it was just my financial assets that needed lots and lots of extra scrutiny. Um, but I guess my point is, is that you're saying there's no need for Lots of key government services that people rely on to actually be that complicated. We could uh, we could um, successfully um, and in fact improve implementation. But you know, I'm trying to think about the policy making process, which is really what you're critiquing here. In the case of these SNAP benefits, what would you have changed and where in the process? Well, I'm critiquing both the policy making process. Um, and an example I would give you outside of SNAP, back to our unemployment insurance uh, backlog, was that right in the middle of this, you know, really incredible crisis, you know, it was very clear to me that the Employment Development Department was trying very hard to clear the backlog. And they weren't able to. They didn't have the right competencies and capacities to do it. Um, but right in the middle of that, we had 
members of the legislature putting forth new bills for new mandates. Um, and they were things like language access, which I find very, very important. We need to make these things available in the languages that the people who are going to use them speak. But that that mandate was already on the books. It was all, they were already out of compliance. So it was just piling on more without recognizing that like you couldn't take the uh, current application form for unemployment insurance and just translate it into other languages. It wasn't going to be any good. As you heard Erica say, like most people who read and, and write English very well couldn't figure it out. So why throw this mandate on, layered on all of the other mandates, instead of saying, hey, EDD, understand your top priority now is clearing the backlog. We're going to back off for a little while. But, but I also want to clarify that I'm also critiquing the interpretation of mm. these laws and policies. Um, they And I have a lot of stories in the book of public servants who pull back and say, I see what this says, this regulation that's been handed down to us, and we can interpret it in a very, very literal and rigid way, in which case it may create a lot of burden for the users. Or we can say, what's the best way to interpret this that actually gets the best outcome for the user? And I think that that decision that that people in the bureaucracy make every day, they just need support to choose the latter and not the former. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this, what you just said, Jennifer, gets us really to the core question of sort of work culture within these state and federal agencies. It sounds like you're saying that uh, the whether the overt or sort of just cultural um, encouragement is to make those literal interpretations. Is that what you're saying? I think, yes. The reason that public servants often make that overly literal and overly rigid interpretation of a law or policy, which ends up in what I call, and I hope this is okay to say on air, policy vomit, where you just take the actual regulation and throw it right into the form, the way that the burial plot just got thrown right into the form didn't need to be, but it did because it was just sort of like, okay, that's that's what you do. You just take it there and take it from the regulation and put it into the form that people are going to use. The reason people sometimes don't exert their judgment and just say, eh, that's not needed. We'll figure that out some other way is this hierarchy and sort of power structure within government that says the policy people are important and they're at the top. And the people who do the implementation, that's just a detail. And that's they're separated uh, in a lot of ways, uh, organizationally, temporally, spatially, from the people who are making the policy. And so they don't have the ability often or the affordance to go back up to policymakers and say, is it, you know, can we interpret this a little loosely so that we can get the outcome that I think you intended? Um, and, you know, if you think about most organizations are hierarchies. The companies are hierarchies. But look at, say, sort of your classic tech company. And I'm not lionizing tech companies here. I have many, many criticisms of them. But implementation, the actual product, is at the top mm. of the power structure in those organizations. They're started by people often who are you know, programmers and designers and what the actual app looks like and how it gets how it works for people is the key consideration and the people who do sort of compliance work tend to be at lower levels with less power they still of course have their place but they're they're supporting some you know the user experience that's the top 
uh, top consideration in these organizations. And it's flipped in government mm-hmm. where the actual experience that the user has is so far down the chain, so far downstream of the important work of policymakers that it's very, very hard to get it right. And I think it's trans- transformational when you kind of break that and allow the people at the bottom to be talking to the people at the top. Yeah. You know, it suddenly occurred to me that maybe um, a somewhat accurate metaphor might be in architecture, right? Like an architect can design as crazy looking a building as she wants. But at some point in time, she's going to have to talk to engineers and say, will this thing stand? Right. So, it you know, it comes earlier in the system other than here's the completed, you know, design and drawings and blueprints. And now you guys figure out if this building, you know, won't collapse on us. But I think, you know, yes. the, the inversion that we see in government, the problem there is politics. And that, that continues to, I think, be the singular difference between um, non-governmental examples we can think of and those that are coming from state yeah. and federal agencies because the people who are creating the policy, as you said, the their accountability feedback, feedback mechanism is votes, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas you, you could make the argument that an executive in a, in a different kind of company, their accountab- accountability feedback mechanism is indeed u- end user experience. So there's a, you said there's a, there's a major disconnect uh, in government how would we, you know, how how could we get some kind of accountability feedback me- mechanism that, I don't know, leapfrogs politics so that it matters more to the people making the policy whether or not that policy effectively reaches the Americans it's supposed to serve? I mean, I... Th- I have a couple of answers to that. And the obvious one is just leadership. So leadership is realizing and connecting the dots and saying, my constituents actually do care about getting their unemployment insurance benefits. They do care about the outcomes that we've sort of said we're we're going for here. And even though they're not asking me about implementation and they don't seem to be voting for me based on my ability to get the bureaucracy to effectively implement, I'm going to have to do that anyway. But I do think it does come back to, you know, how do we, the people, hold our elected leaders accountable? I mean, have you ever been asked by a candidate for office for your vote or for your money and said, "Um, yes, but I want to know what you're doing to have a healthy civil service in this jurisdiction. I want to know what you're doing about hiring. I want to know how you're following up on the implementation of the policies and laws that you've just promised you're going to pass. we have to change how we relate to politicians. Mm. Well, Jennifer Palka, stand by here for just a second, because when we come back, we're going to talk about some examples on, on how to make this system work better, both culturally in government uh, and technologically. So Jennifer's new book is called Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. And as a reminder, we've got an excerpt of it at onpointradio.org. Back in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. 
As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking with Jennifer Palka. She's author of the new book, Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Now, uh, Jennifer, I want to sort of uh, dig deeply into another example that emerges from your book, and that has to do with Medicare. Because in 2015, Congress passed MACRA, or the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act. It was the largest modern change in how Medicare pays doctors. So the idea was to move from fee-for-service payments, where doctors and hospitals get paid for each test or procedure they do, to what's considered value-based payments. And that's a system where doctors and hospitals get paid based on outcomes. Essentially, they get paid more if they're keeping patients healthy. So this new system required a new way to get data to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, so that CMS could determine the quality of care that doctors and hospitals were providing. Well, the United States Digital Service, which is a federal agency that provides IT consultation services to other agencies, was tapped to help CMS with building a new website that would receive the data. Natalie Cates was part of that team. When we first got to CMS, we saw a pretty typical government software project. And what I mean by typical there is there were a lot of people, a lot of contractors, a large team writing the policy and the technical requirements in tandem, and a lot of project management, not so much thought into how doctors were actually going to interact with this program how the program would be launched, how it would all work together, and sort of how it would benefit the people it was trying to serve. So in order to answer that question, Kate's and the team wanted to figure out how to explain to a doctor in a simple and straightforward way how the new program was going to work. But their primary resource was a 2,000-page-long Word document. That document was also constantly changing. So the goal was to boil down the program to a one-page website for doctors that would sum up in plain language what they should expect. It should have been a very simple ask. As many technologists know, putting a static page on the internet is not that hard. There's one page of content. It should have taken 
a couple people a few hours to write got cleared through the clearance process at CMS and we should have been able to put it on the internet. Instead, it took me 10 months to get that single page website out because it turns out when you explain a 2000 page complicated policy in a single plain language website, it highlights how much disconnect and questions there are about that policy that have not been answered with that 2000 page document. Okay. So under the policy, a doctor could participate in the new Medicare program as an individual or as part of a group. But the issue was, when it came to being part of a group, there were nine different definitions that doctors could fall into. And Kate's thought that was way too many for doctors to have to choose from. It would make the software more difficult to build and create a lot more hassle for administrators to process. I probably had a hundred hour-long calls with different parts of the team, the team as a whole, to try to get those groups whittled down to two. It does not seem like something as obvious as making a definition of a group make sense to a doctor who is going to have to choose and get paid based off of that distinction should be hard. But it's hard because The team is incentivized to be technically right, not reasonably right. Well, Kate's and the team were eventually able to get the number of definitions down from nine to two, but it was a struggle. In order for government to get better at delivering policy, the people who understand the policy goals and the people who understand technology have to be in the same room from the beginning to work through what is feasible, what technology is helpful with, and what technology isn't helpful with. Well, that was Natalie Cates, formerly of the United States Digital Service. On January 1st, 2018, the new Medicare site launched on schedule without any issues, and users reported it was easy to use and understand. So, Jennifer, um, I I love this example because ultimately uh, the right thing did happen. But what could have been changed in the process so that it wasn't, you know, as difficult and and painful or or as much of a struggle as Natalie describes? And I ask that because you talk about in the book the need for product managers, uh, not just project managers uh, when it comes to implementing government programs. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's a great example, too. And it was lovely to hear Natalie talk about it. It was very inspiring for me when I when I talked to her for writing the book. Um, product management is a thing that is very well known in the consumer tech world and very easily confused with project management in government. So when I talk to government people about product management, they usually say, oh, yes, we have good project managers. And, and I have to make a point of making the distinction. And the distinction in my words or the words I've sort of borrowed from colleagues is project management, which is incredibly important and we need great project managers, is the art of getting things done. But product management is the art of deciding what to do in the first place. And when you have a project like the one that, that Natalie and others were working on at CMS, it's really hard to do that when there's sort of this assumption that you have to, for instance, code for all nine definitions of the group. And when you say 
um, actually, we're going to need to boil those down to one, and I'm glad they got to two, but one would have been better. It's really hard because the people say, well, that's not your lane. That's not your call. And people like Natalie and her colleagues at CMS, it wasn't just the USDS folks, it was also the, the CMS folks, had to stand up and say, we're going to you know, we, we need to continue to have a conversation about that. We're going we're gonna to need to really talk it through with you. And yes, we're tech people having a discussion about policy, but that's how this is going to get to an outcome that we all want. And it does mean that you're going to, exactly as Natalie said, you have to have the tech people in the room for the discussion long before they are normally invited. Because by the time you already have those nine definitions and you're just coding for them, you've built a concrete boat. Uh huh. I mean, you're saying that those tech people or those um, those product managers, they need to be in the room from the start when policies are, um, you know, at their natal stage and being created. Often, yes. And uh, let me give you an example outside of Medicare, though. There's many more, you know, great examples of it in that team that did Macra. But I talk in the book uh, about a process in California where many states have decriminalized marijuana. And in doing that, they have said, if you have a criminal record from marijuana, we should be able to take it off. It's very, very hard to live under the burden of a felony record. The thing you've done a crime for is no longer a crime. So let's remove that from your record so that you can get a job, et cetera. And, you know, it turns out that that process is incredibly complicated. It's it's much worse, actually, than applying for SNAP or some of the other things we've talked about. Uh, there's many, many steps. You have to go to court and file a whole bunch of paperwork and fill out a lot of confusing forms. And so no one was really doing it. So we had this huge gap between the idea of the law and the actual real-world outcomes that the law had intended, and that is a gap of implementation. And so a team at Code for America had started working with the San Francisco DA's office to sort of say, look, you know, none of this paperwork process is necessary. That felony record is just a field in a database. We can find all those records that are eligible and change the field in the database, essentially. Now, much like Natalie getting from nine to two, but not all the way to one, they didn't quite get all the way there, but they did realize that they didn't need people to petition for this change on their record at all. They could just work directly with the bureaucrats on the back end to change it. But one of the things they found later was that um, in previous uh, expungement laws, they had been written in such a way that there, you couldn't actually go in and just query the database and say, who are all the people who are eligible for expungement under this particular proposition in California? If you can't actually search on those folks, then you can't do it automatically. And if you can't do it automatically, really no one's going to mm. end up with the expungement. And I'll give you a little example. In this case, it was the law was written to say that um, if you were had been convicted of a burglary that was under $950, and I think it had to be commercial or residential, I can't remember which, that was what made you eligible. But there's that exists, if at all, that information exists in like paper forms that, you know, policemen, police officers have have scribbled in, you know, hard to read handwriting. And even if you could read that handwriting, you're not going to necessarily know, you know, was this, you know, Canon, you know, sure shot 10 
worth more than $950 in 2011. And so it's you. the solution ends up being when you're writing that law, have somebody who understands the data structures at the table, and then you can make a decision about whether you're going to be able to make it automatable. I see. Because, you know, it was occurring to me that... Uh uh, that of the the folks writing the law, they have the you don't know what you don't know problem, right? They wouldn't even know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so so you get around that by having people who understand the data structure right there with you as you're trying to create the policy. And they are, I would say, almost never invited to the table at that stage. Um, but it is often incredibly helpful to have them there, not just in the cases of data structure, but, you know, how how should we actually implement this law? What technology issues or, or data issues are going to come up? And it's happening more and more now. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you have this remarkable fact um, that uh, the federal workforce between 2015 and 2020 was about 2 million uh, employees strong. But out of those 2 million, only seven people Seven out of two million had product manager <laughs> or product management in their job title. So it sounds like it was... Yeah, that was it, the federal workforce. Federal workforce, yes. right, exactly. So, I mean, it sounds like, again, we come back to this issue of culture, that it's not even something that, that has been recognized as a need uh, in within agencies. I think that's right. And I think it also derives from this sense that the further down the hierarchy you go, the less decision-making authority you should have, the less judgment you should use. A product manager is someone who's empowered to make decisions, to interpret law, policy, and regulation in the service of users. And that can make people pretty uncomfortable. But I think they don't realize that they are also quite uncomfortable when they pass a law or policy, and then the outcome is exactly the opposite of what they intended, which, for example, was about to be what would happen with, with, you know, before Natalie and the team at CMS really, you know, took charge of the implementation of MACRA, you had this situation where doctors were threatening to leave the program because they were so frustrated, which would have degraded the quality of the care, not improved it. So we're, I think, you know, People with power in government have to choose. Are you okay getting the wrong outcome or are you going to be okay empowering some people to use their judgment a little bit lower down in the hierarchy? Mm -hmm. Well, there's another aspect of um, how work culture in government could positively change and it has to do with team autonomy, right? And so Michael Nugent, he's someone who worked in government for about 25 years, first in the Department of Education, then in the Department of Defense as the Director of Defense Language and National Security Education Office. They focused on foreign language, culture, and regional expertise for DOD personnel, so an important job. And he says his team had a tiny budget, but it had a lot of autonomy. As more and more layers of people came in to scrutinize what you're doing, it slows things down. So, for example, a pilot, you know, who's flying a large plane has the authority, go or no go, based on what his or her decisions are on what's going on with the aircraft. He or she does not have to go out and say, oh, gee, gee I went through this checklist and now it needs to be looked at 15 other people and, and then it needs to be sent somewhere else before I can pull the plane out of the gate. That's kind of a similar analogy to having autonomy in an office that needs to innovate. 
trust the leader of that office to make decisions and hold them accountable for that. But once you start putting on layers and layers and layers of people, you have every single time that goes through something, it goes through a different interpretation, the more likelihood there is for delays in innovation. Mm. Jennifer, could you take a quick minute to talk about um, how we've seen some successful innovation in government? I mean, you talk about how mm-hmm. eventually we've had, we did eventually have some fast shipment of COVID, of rapid tests for COVID, for example. Just take a quick minute to describe that. Yeah, I think a lot of people really liked using covidtests.gov. That came out, um, I think, right in the beginning of the Biden administration. I used it. it. I timed myself. It took me 11 seconds to order my tests. They came just a couple days later. That's really delightful service delivery. And um, of course, they did that in just a couple weeks. And in fact, Natalie Cates, who we heard from earlier, was on that team. And you know, it's easy to say, well, that was a simple thing that you know wasn't as complicated as you know getting doctors in a value-based care program or even clearing criminal records. But the truth is, they could have made it much more complicated. Think of all the things they could have asked. Mm. Uh, your vaccination status, your health insurance information, the size of the household you live in, the age of your kids. And they decided not to. And I think that was what I want to highlight about that is they made an active decision to say, what's important here? Scalability, ease of use, accessibility. It launched in more than one language, which is really important to to the country. Um, And they said, if we're going to make it those things, you know, it's going to have to handle very high volume of use. Um, and it's going to be have to be accessible to more people, then we're going to have to not do those other things. And they made the right choice. And that is great product management. Yeah. And, you know, even though we've been using a lot of technical language this hour, it seems to me that, you know, fundamentally a democratic system of governance is supposed to work for people, right? And when too many people feel like the government isn't working for them, they seek other forms of leadership, right? I think it's one of the things that they do. when democratic governments, small d, fail, I mean, it's one of the things that helps usher in authoritarianism. So this does matter to all of us. Jennifer Palka, the book is Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. Terrific book, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Magna. This was lovely. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 